Good morning, Doxa family. We'll have our time of scripture reading. We're reading this morning from Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in heaven and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Um, thank you for listening to the scripture reading. Y'all may be seated. Well, we're in the midst of a five-part series. This is week three of a five-part series on the prophet Joel. And today we're in the, what I would consider the most important passage in this book. And that is so, unsmart, so important that we're going we're gonna to spend two weeks on it. It's, the, it's a, such an important passage because it's the passage that on the day of Pentecost, the day that the, the Christian church was born, if you will, it's the passage that Peter used to explain what was happening when the Holy Spirit had fallen upon the early disciples. Uh, this whole book is really applicable to us today, but this passage is the particular passage that speaks directly to the age that we live in. Uh, but to really understand what it's saying, we need to understand what's happening. We need to understand the, the problem that Joel is addressing in this book. And we've been talking about it over the past two weeks. Uh, it, Joel starts out, uh, out talking in this book about a problem that the Jews knew they had. It wasn't a secret that the Jews knew they had a problem. They had had swarm after swarm of locusts that had come through the nation. And each wave that had come through had ravaged the country. One wave alone of locusts in an area that is an agrarian-based economy and society would be absolutely devastating, but they had wave after wave after wave that had come through. The locusts had come through, they destroyed the, the crops, they destroyed the trees, they'd eaten the leaves, they'd even eaten the bark off the trees. Each wave was devastating, but it didn't stop, it just kept on coming, and the Jews were in despair over that, understandably. And then Joel comes in and he offers a message of hope. We saw it at the end of our passage last week, the end of chapter two, the, uh, the middle of chapter two. He offers a, a message of hope, but not before he gives a harder message. He offers a message of hope. He says, God's going to come. He's going to restore all that has been lost. Everything the locust has stolen, he's going to restore it. But first, here's a harder message that you need to hear. It's not God's will for you to be in famine. He doesn't want you to be hungry, but neither is he content for you to rebel against him. You see, God is a jealous God. And he's not going to stand by while his people worship false idols. While his people go about the, go through the motions, but whose hearts are, hard, are far away from him and hard to him and his word and his ways. God doesn't desire, just for the record, God doesn't desire hardship and he doesn't desire famine on their own. That's not the way he created this world to be. But he does have a priority that is higher. He has a good that he aims for that's a higher good, a higher priority for him. 
And he speaks to the prophet Joel, and he, he says that the people of Judah should be mourning. You should be lamenting. You should be mourning. But not just because of what the locusts have consumed and what they have stolen, but you should be mourning and lamenting because you have forgotten me, he says. That's your deepest problem. That you have forgotten me and you have turned away from me. Now, they still had the temple. They still had the sacrifices. They still had all the things that the priests would do every day and annually. That didn't stop. They still had the teachings of the Torah. But their hearts as a people and individually had grown dull. They'd grown hard. As God speaks through Joel, he says that you should be lamenting and you should be mourning, but you should be doing so in a way that leads to repentance. And repentance is turning from yourself, turning from other way, and turning back to God. He's saying, he said in our passage last week, turn back to me, return to me. The Lord is telling them they have a, a real problem that is underneath all their other problems. They keep turning away from the Lord. That was the, the, the whole habit, the whole series, the whole generational story of the people of Israel and Judah is that God had said in the original with Abraham, you will be my chosen people. And yet all throughout history, he would, he would call them to himself. They would come and worship him and then they would run after other idols. They'd run after their own way. They'd rebel against him. And then he would call them back and then they would run after their own way and call them back and over and over and over again. Each return to him followed by another falling away. They just couldn't seem to get their act together. I wonder how many of us are in the same place. I wonder how many of us how many of you, your, your journey as a Christian is one of dramatic fits and starts? The story that I just explained to, shared about the Israel's history is really your history as well as a believer. You come to him, you run away. You come to him and run away. If we were to graph your Christian life, it might look something like a zigzag up and down or back and forth. Or maybe it'll look like a, a circle, like a cycle, like you're just going around the same circle over and over again, like you're going around and around the mountain but never seem to be making up any ground. Now here's the truth. The Christian life is not just perpetually up, but it is going up. The Christian life isn't that I make a decision for Christ and all of a sudden I'm transformed instantly into the image of Christ, but it is day by day, moment by moment, faith upon faith, day upon day, line upon line, growing into the image, noticeably into the image of Christ. That's what the Christian life should look like. Not going around in a circle around the same mountain over and over and over again. It's, it's not that you, in those stages, in that kind of life, it's not that you completely reject the Lord. Just like the people of Israel, they still had the temple, they had the sacrifices, they'd go and observe the Sabbath, they would go and observe the holy days. You might come to church, you might serve, you might give, you might be, or might be actively even reading your Bible, but your spiritual life is dull. Your heart and your mind most often is, are unmoved and unchanged. Perhaps you once knew a thriving spiritual life. Maybe you can remember, you, you've had seasons where Jesus seemed more real and more precious to you than your next breath. Maybe you've had seasons like that. 
but it's been a long time. Your heart has grown hard and your spiritual life has grown dull. Maybe you call yourself a Christian, but you've never even had a season like that where Jesus seemed so real and so precious. Both of those. Not just real, but precious. Not just precious, but real. So real and so precious that he was more meaningful and more real and more precious than your next breath. Maybe you've never experienced that. But here's something that you need to know this morning. I want you to know this morning, real scriptural Christianity is not dead and dry and dull. I think that we have accepted, I'll speak for myself and some of you that I know, I think we have accepted a dry, dull, dead Christianity rather than true, spiritual, biblical, life-giving, joy-filled, faith-filled Christianity. Because you see, at its core, Christianity is not a religion about self-improvement and morality. In fact, it's not about self-improvement at all, and it involves morality, but not the way that we often think. A big lie that I want to address this morning is the lie that dull, lifeless, changeless Christianity is normal. Dull, lifeless, changeless Christianity is not normal. It it is not the the norm for Christianity. It's It's not the picture that Jesus paints in the Sermon on the Mount that we just came out of, was it? It's not the picture of the church that we see in the book of Acts, and it's certainly not what Paul writes about in his letters to the early churches. In the New Testament, we see a church where the Spirit of God is present and active and known by the people. We see individual believers, individual Christians who are bright, shining with the light and love of Jesus Christ. That's true Christianity. Not where every moment of every day, of every week is a mountaintop experience, but where the presence of Jesus is known and experienced even in the dark valleys. And his love and his joy is known even in deep sadness. And God and his goodness and his care for us will even allow and even direct things to happen to us, things that we would consider bad things, things that he didn't originally intend for this world to have in order for us to bring us back to a place of mourning of our state apart from him, to to bring us to a place of repentance, a place of despair. Because you see, there's not hope without despair. God doesn't offer hope to sinners who aren't in despair. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's who God offers hope to. See, God's spirit, which is what is being promised in this passage, God's spirit coming over you isn't something to rejoice about if you're content with your own spirit and your own life the way that it is. 
In fact, if you don't think that you're broken, who cares whether there's a promise of his spirit or not? If you don't despair of life apart from him, who cares whether he promises that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh or not? In fact, you don't, you positively and negatively don't care for his spirit to be poured out upon you because it would simply be an inconvenience. It would be an, an interruption to your agenda. The question is, how's that working out for you? Are you yet at an end of yourself? Because if you don't know lament, if you don't know repentance from your wayward heart, then no wonder you don't hunger and thirst for the Holy Spirit above all things. No wonder you still hold him at arm's length away from you. No wonder your theology effectively bars you from including him in your everyday life. Are you content to lament the lack of God's presence in your life? Are you too content to lament the lack of God's presence in your life? Are you too comfortable with your actions to repent of your self-sufficiency and your self-rule? Are you too enamored by your own intelligence, your wit, or your righteousness? No wonder we don't see the prophecy that we just read fulfilled in our day and age. Because the path to this kind of life, the path to this kind of experience of the Spirit is only through lament and repentance. Otherwise, the way is closed to us by our own construction. You see, we're all in the same place the Israelites were. Left to ourselves, we have a problem. Our hearts long for God, but we can't stop rebelling against him, can we? We want to live different lives, but we can't change ourselves. And that's where the good news of this passage really begins to breathe. Because God promises an answer to our problem, but it's only for the desperate. And it is for us, just as it was for the Jews who heard this, a shocking answer. He says, this is the answer to your rebellion. This is the answer to your zigzag back and forth. This is the answer to your hard heart and your dull religion that you call Christianity or they call Judaism. He said, this is the answer is that my spirit, that God's spirit would be poured out upon all flesh. That first of all, that God's spirit, this is an amazing promise. He says, this is the answer that I will send and I will pour out my spirit. Now, the, the thing that we should hear there when he says my spirit is it's not some secondary power. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of God. It's the third, he is the third person of the Godhead. God is Trinity and the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And what God says, here's my answer for your hard and dull hearts. This is my answer to your zigzag. This is my answer to your inability to change yourself. My answer is that I would send not some secondary power, but I would pour out my spirit, the third person that God had, upon you. That's the only answer. You cannot improve yourself. You cannot change yourself. The only hope, the only answer is that me, myself, my spirit would be poured out upon you to come and change who you are, the things that you cannot change yourself. Not just some power, but myself. 
And the beautiful promise of that is because that is who God is. He is self-giving. We see the clearest, most beautiful picture of it in Jesus. He didn't just, whenever he saw us in our sin problem, he didn't just send a servant, hey, go take care of the sin problem for me. He sent himself. He came himself. He gave himself for our deepest problem. And in promising to pour out his spirit himself upon us, he's saying, I, am, I care enough about you that I will pour out myself upon you. I will give you myself. And Jesus considered it such a precious thing to be poured out upon us that he called it the promise of the Father. And this is how important Jesus deemed it. He said that he needed to ascend back to the Father so that the Father would send the Spirit. And he said, it would be better for you to have him than to have me. Because in having him, we all get to have Jesus. Jesus doesn't dwell in one place in a body. He communicates and gives himself through his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, to all flesh. He says, that's my promise. That's what he says. He says, I will pour it out. Did you hear that word? I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. That word to, to pour out is a picture. It paints a picture. It's a, it means to gush out in a steady stream. That's what God says he's going to do to all flesh. He says, your problem runs so deep and it is so dire apart from me that I need to give myself, but I'm not going to give myself stingily or just come by and meet you and shake your hand and walk away. And so you met me. I'm going to pour out, I'm going to gush out like a stream, my spirit upon you and within you. It's the picture of a, of a heavy rainfall. That's where it comes in here in the story of Joel. In the prophecy, he says, hey, our crops have been bad, but God's going to give a ladder, a late rain that's going to come in and water your crops. You're going to give us a great harvest in return. He says, that's the kind of rain. That's the kind of pouring out that I'm going to give my spirit to you. Like the, the kind where the bottom falls out and it feels like the, the skies are emptying and it's never going to stop. That's how I'm going to pour out my spirit upon you. I'm going to gush myself out upon you, pour it out, empty myself upon you, upon flesh. And this would be shocking to the Jews and it should be shocking to us. Whenever he says, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh, what he's saying is, I'm going to give a personal and direct and continual experience of myself. A direct, personal, continual experience of God himself. He says this, this is my promise to the last days, that my people are to be marked by an experience of the fullness of God. That should be the mark of God's people. God's presence has always been the mark of God's people. The fact that God's presence dwelt in the temple in the middle of Jerusalem marked the Jews as God's people. And today, throughout the whole New Testament and the promises of the Old Testament, the picture is that we are and should be marked by individually and collectively by God's people, by his presence experienced and known within us and among us as God's people. And all that comes with his presence he says, I will give a direct and personal knowledge of myself. No longer will you have to come through a mediator. 
No longer we have to come through a priest. No longer will goats and bulls have to be, have their blood shed for you. No matter, no longer will there be a veil between me and you. And if you're a Gentile, no longer will you be outside the temple, out in the court, away from my presence, but my presence will gush out and be poured out upon you because you've been made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. A direct and personal knowledge of God. That's what Jesus said in John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, not just upon, but out of, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That was the promise. My Spirit, I will pour it out upon you, and so much so that it will gush from out of you to those around you. I will pour out my Spirit, do you hear that? On all flesh, or all kinds of flesh. He says this, upon both men and women, upon the old and the young, upon the rich and the servants, I will pour out my spirit. Now that would be and is revolutionary, particularly in this day and age when Joel gives us prophecy, when those who held power were the old, were the men, and were the rich. Not much different than now, but that's a whole other commentary. But you didn't have access to power unless you were older, rich, and a man. And he says, this is how revolutionary it's going to be when I pour out my spirit on all kinds of flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even upon the servants, the slaves, both male and female, I will pour out my spirit, he says. He's saying this is the only answer that will do to your deepest problem because it's the reversal of the fall. At the fall, Adam and Eve, who walked and talked in the presence of God and were so clothed with the glory and the presence of God, they were not even aware that they were naked. All of a sudden, whenever they sinned, everything was broken. He says, I'm coming to restore that to all people. It's the restoration or the remaking of mankind. God's breath that he breathed into Adam at the beginning whenever he formed him from the dust and breathed the breath of life into him, he restores the breath of life to man and to woman and to child and to the elderly and to the rich and to the poor. It's the reunion you see of God with man. Communion fellowship restored between God and his created being. And he says, this is what Joel says, he says, it will be such a drastic change when God's spirit is poured out that it will mark the beginning of the last days. When I pour out my spirit in those days, or as Peter, we're going to look at next week, as Peter looks back and says, in the last days, when I pour out my spirit, it's going to so change history that it's going to mark the beginning of a new era. The last days will begin. I'm remaking the world and I'm doing it beginning in the hearts of my people who I gush forth my presence 
on and within and through. This is the promised answer, not only to Israel's problems, but to all of humanity as well. It's the major theme of the Old Testament prophets. It's the good news that they all pointed towards. Isaiah said, and I'm going to give you a couple of passages here, so I hope you don't get drowned. I'm not supposed to give this many passages, but I want you to see that this is the theme of the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 32, 15 through 18. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the, in the fruitful field. He's painting the picture that God will pour out His Spirit upon us upon flesh and he will make things right again. And the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. For this is the covenant that will make with the house of Israel after those days. Hear that? In the last days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for what? They shall all know me. Hear that? The spirit of God, the knowledge of God and the experience of God being communicated directly by God to the heart of his people from the least of them to the greatest. Hear that? Upon them my servants upon the old, the elderly, the the young, the rich, and the poor, upon the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Last one, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And I will give you, he says, a new heart. That's the promise he's pointing to and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is beautiful. It's the promise. But it only happens through repentance. It only happens by owning and turning from the things that I consider more important than God or really or determining or just choosing to determine my own life for myself. Do you know what it's like to repent? I don't mean to mean like throw up a prayer, God, I, I shouldn't have done that. I mean to repent. I mean wait before the Lord in prayer until he's changed your heart away from that thing back to himself. It happens through repentance, but it also happens through faith in believing, this is how Hebrews describes faith, believing that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that God is and that he will do whatever he says that he will do? He will reward those who seek him with his presence and experience of his presence and his power like this? But not only does he, Joel give a, a shocking answer to the, the pressing problem, but he describes the dramatic effects that this will have among God's people. We already read some of them. The first dramatic effect we see that that implied from Joel and laid out in these uh, companion passages that we just read is that God's people will now, once his spirit is poured out upon them, will love and obey God from their heart. 
No longer an exterior standard that says, this is what you should do and not do, and I'm over here looking at that, but from my heart and soul, I feel and sense and hear God speaking to me. And, it, and as I hear, as I study and read the Word, I hear it proclaimed and taught. I hear it echoing with God's Spirit and God's implanted Word within me. It says, yes, that is true. But you can't love and obey God from the heart apart from the Spirit of God being poured out upon you. And not just once, not just once. Like I, I prayed a prayer and God gave me a spirit. Now I'm like living on my own. But continually, that's why Paul says, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The dramatic effects of the, of the Spirit of God being poured upon all flesh is that we would have the knowledge of the Lord. We would no longer, do you hear that in the passage we read, that it no longer would be something external, that some external teacher is teaching us that is dry and dull, but I have a knowledge of the Lord within my own, within my own soul and that a knowledge that I belong to the Lord. Paul describes it as the Spirit of God within our spirit, crying out, Abba, Father, testifying with our heart that we belong to the Lord, that God is our Father. He promises out through the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us that we would have communion with the Trinity, and he says this will be the sign and the seal of my people. This is how they will know that you are my God, that I am your God and you are my people, that my Spirit dwells in you and among you. This is what Joel says. He says that one of the amazing things that will happen is that normal people will now minister in the power of God. And he gives three examples. He says they will prophesy, they will have dreams, and they'll see visions. Now as they heard this in their day, it would have been revolutionary because all of these experiences, prophesying, dreaming God dreams, and having God-given visions were out of the question for the normal person. They were reserved for the holy men, and even then it was rare. In fact, it was more likely that a priest would die or be killed and the, holy, the priest, the holiest man of Israel, would be struck dead in the Holy of Holies. It's more likely that he would be struck dead in the Holy of Holies than he would prophesy. That's why they were shocked when Zechariah came out, the father of John the Baptist. And this list that he gives that Now, this is what will happen. I'll, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. The, the, the examples that he gives aren't meant to be uh, classifications. It would have been simply to say this is a revolutionary democratization of God's presence to his people. Why? Because these experiences, speaking in the name of the Lord, prophecy, Dreaming God-given dreams and seeing God-given visions were experiences that were to serve as authentication of the presence of the Spirit of God among us people. Just want to ask, do you experience his presence? Do you experience his power? 
Do we see and sense him in our lives and in our church and, and ministering to, th- to and through all of us in such a way that it looks like the fulfilling a prophet, the prophet Joel? Do you care to? Are you content without it? Are you content to simply, hey, let me leave here and go back to my normal life? Because we're going to see next week, we're going to look back upon this passage from Acts and see that this is the age that we live in now. And what do we do? What do you need to repent of this morning? What are you holding on to? It might be a certain sin. It might be a certain relationship. It might just be a certain personal pride that you think that you've got this thing figured out. Do you hunger and thirst for God's spirit, His presence above all things? And do you long more than seeing your bank account grow or your house get to where you hope it to be or your children to be raised, which are, all those are great things. Do you long for deeper and stronger than any of those things that you would see the hand of God move through you and through us in such a way that fulfills the prophet Joel in our day? I'm going to pray and after the, the band comes up, they're going uh, to sing a song. And as we're going to open up the front for you to come and uh, receive, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus on your behalf. And I hope as you come that you would come, maybe God's pricking your heart in a certain way and say, God, I'm coming forward to take this. Maybe you shouldn't take it. Maybe you need to do some business with the Lord this morning before you do that. But I'm coming to receive this bread and this juice to say, I want to hunger and thirst for you more than anything else. Help me to do that. By your spirit and your shed blood of Christ and broken body on Christ on my behalf, help change my heart that I desire that above all things. When you receive the elements, you go back to your seat, we'll finish the song, and then grace will lead us in communion together. Father, I thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit that in our day and age you are remaking us and you are desiring to, through us, remake the world to showcase the new humanity, the new kingdom that you are bringing. And Father, I pray that you would grant us repentance. trusting to our own selves from having priorities other than you and your presence and your kingdom. And God, I pray that you would make us a people who see your kingdom come and your will be done through the presence and power of your Holy Spirit in our lives and in our midst together. In the name of Christ we pray.